oh hey how you doing um it's monday again which means it's time for us to somberly finish up return of living dead the john russo novelization of the dan o'bannon script i can't believe we we started in the first week of january and now here we are at the end of march um it's it's bittersweet it's bittersweet but it's been it's been a fun ride i've really thoroughly enjoyed reading this with you guys and um we'll think of something else to do next time for sure um we're going to do three chapters because they're all a bit on the the short side of things and that will bring us to the end of the book so where were we when we last left off Meet and um, Bert have met up with Casey and Chuck. Casey and Chuck finally have made it, as all the kids would say. They, they got it on, and now they're they want to. They set this elaborate Scooby Doo like trap to, um, to subdue the Tar Man so they can get the number in the basement. But now they're leaving again. They have to leave again because there is no phone in the basement the way there is in the movie. So now we're at chapter twenty. The police watch commander, Sergeant Harry McCarthy, was now drinking straight from his secret bottle, not bore, not bothering to pour slugs into black coffee. Remember, we had that chapter with him at the beginning when they first started calling uh, the cops. Well, now he's just pouring. Now he's just drinking straight from the bottle. His whiskey nose was a brighter shade of red and his baggy eyes were baggier and more bloodshot. His gray hair was a rumpled mess from scratching his thick fingers through his scalp trying to figure out what the hell to do why couldn't his watch be plagued by ordinary by ordinary incidents stabbings shootings r-a-p-e-s's assaults accidents domestic squabbles stuff that he could handle instead of whatever the fuck was going on out there that kept making cops and squad cars and paramedics and ambulances disappear as if they had been swallowed up by the Bermuda Triangle. His second team of officers had presumably gone out to Colton Burner's funeral home over an hour ago. At least that's at least he had radioed them to go there. But since then, he had no communication from them to confirm that his orders had been followed. He assumed that they had. So now he was down four men and two cars and had no idea on God's green earth why. Should he send another team of cops into oblivion? He slugged down some more whiskey and pondered the excellent odds that he would be kicked off the police force and lose his 20-year pension. Yeah, pensions, that, that's, a, that's a thing that's gone the way of the dodo. Uh, just when he was only a half a year away from being able to claim it. Could you imagine that there was a time in life where you could claim a pension like that? I mean, they still do exist, but they're just not, not as easily accessible. All right, all right. He wouldn't just send another squad car. This time he'd give them air support. He'd send a squad car and a helicopter. Encouraged by this whiskey-inspired brainstorm, he radioed the police chopper station. I feel so trapped up here, we, Tina wailed. Remember, Tina and Ernie are now up in the attic. They've boarded up the thing. Uh, Freddie had his eyes gouged out with a candelabra, and Frank is rabid. How in the world is anyone going to rescue us now? Ernie put his arm around her. They were sitting in total darkness in the attic loft. He had turned off his flashlight to conserve the batteries. Feeling the young, pretty girl's warm body, body shivering against him made him feel manly and protective. 
even in these dire circumstances. Up till now, he had always been shy and awkward in the presence of desirable women. But now, because of his newfound self-respect, he believed that he, if he ever got out of this alive in the conventional sense, he would deserve and maybe even land somebody as nice as Tina. He wasn't even tongue-tied with her. In fact, he did a pretty good job of coming up with consoling words. When the police started understanding the scope of this emergency, they'll mobilize. They'll get here in force and they'll have sophisticated weaponry, not just regular guns and hatchets and hammers like we have. If it takes flamethrowers and bazookas, that's what they'll bring in. Whatever will destroy the ghouls. Then they'll comb all the buildings around here for human survivors. When they come into the funeral home, we'll have to yell and stomp to let them know we're up here. We won't come down until we're sure it's safe. What if the cops shoot first and ask questions later? Wink, wink, nod, nudge, nudge to Night of Living Dead. Um, we'll just have to be careful, said Ernie. You know, we don't really have to unboard the hatch till we know it's all clear. Also, we're white and don't have to worry about cops shooting us because we're black, like in Night of Living Dead. Um, we can wait for the ghouls and the cops and everybody to be gone. That sounds like the best. That sounds like the best idea, said Tina. I guess I could stick it up, stick it out up here for a long time if I knew I had to. If only it didn't always have to be so dark. It's pitch black up here and it gives me the creeps. You know, that's what's funny. That is the interesting thing about Night of Living Dead is that Ben is in the same situation. Um, he's down in the basement. He's waiting for it all to boil over. He comes upstairs. Oh, look, the police are here. I'm safe because that's what police do. They protect and serve. And it's left kind of ambiguous. But in today's climate with all the cell phone footage out there sorry getting political sorry sorry i shouldn't be doing this i can't help myself um that's what that's what makes the the, the ending of night of living dead just so crazy though like when you plug in that ending today i've talked about this before on the show i mean it's it's there man the subtext is there um in any case tina 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 and um uh ernie wouldn't have to worry about that um, it's so pitch black up here it gives me the creeps I think I can fix that Ernie told her gently there ought to be some graveyard candles in one of these cardboard boxes he clicked on the flashlight and started to rummage stirring up dust and irritants from the fiberglass insulation just then he and Tina heard through the roof and the patter of continuing rain the whirling of a helicopter blades they listened hard the whirling didn't fade it just hovered and got louder it's them. It's them. It's the cops, Tina cried, hopefully. From directly beneath the hatch, through the plywood barrier, came Freddy's sick, raspy voice. Come on down, Tina. I'm waiting for you, Tina, darling. Look what you did. You made me break my hand clean off. But it don't matter, darling. Cause I love you. That that wasn't all written just there. It was just me ad libbing. The powerful searchlight beam cut a, a a conical swath downward through the night rain as the police chopper moved in a hovering circle above the funeral home and its side lot. The pilot and co-pilot spotted a dozen or more scurrying figures down below scuttling like cockroaches out of the re reach of the beam and into the surrounding darkness. 
With its siren and flashes going, the third squad car of the evening rendezvoused with the helicopter, pulling into the lot and parking by the second squad car and the ambulance that had brought Birchok and Feldstein to their deaths. The cops in the car radioed the chopper pilot for a briefing. Your immediate, your immediate vicinity looks clear at the moment, the pilot said. Proceed with the utmost caution. We're dealing with some kind of mob scene. Maybe a riot that's winding down. Some of the participants split when they saw our beam. We're going to give chase and expand our surveillance over. Um, John Russo needs to work on writing cop dialogue. He did a really good job in Night of Living Dead. Um, They're dead. They're all messed up. Okay, we'll check out the scene here, the driver of the squad car said. Hunching their shoulders against the rain, he and his partner got out of their vehicle, shining their big, red-rimmed flashlights. Seeing no immediate danger, they did not draw their revolvers. The helicopter moved off slowly towards the cemetery, its low-flying blades beating loudly and its searchlight beaming in yellowish brilliance out of the blackness of the rainy night. The two cops on the ground approached the squad car that had they had parked next to, shining the red-tinged light on its rain-beaded windows. They could have sworn nobody had been in there just a minute ago, but now they glimpsed somebody sitting on the passenger side. They both had the same thought. It could be an injured or dazed cop who had managed to get himself up from the seat or the floor. The figure moved, and the door of the car swung open. An apparent policeman got out. Keyword being an apparent policeman got out. Manko Donaldson, he called out in a hoarse, hurt sounding voice. Oh, this is good. Let me let me take that again. An apparent policeman got out. Manko Donaldson, he called out in a hoarse, hurt sounding voice. He was, of course, a corpse. He had heard the correct names of the approaching officers over the police band radio in the car. He was wearing a dead officer's uniform. Manko and Donaldson were lulled by being called by the name by what they thought was a fellow officer who had been hurt. That is terrifying. They squinted through the rain trying to make out the face. By the time they saw the rictus grin, ooh, it was too late. The bogus cop had pounced upon Manko and was biting into his skull. Then five more ghouls came out of the shadows at Donaldson. He drew his revolver and squeezed off around, shooting at Manko's attacker in the head, but to no effect. The ghoul cop just kept biting, crunching into Manko's skull. Donaldson hurried fire. Donaldson hurriedly fired three more rounds and was positive they had been direct hits. In the beam of his flashlight, he had seen chunks of flesh flying when the, where the bullet struck. But his attackers kept coming, screaming and hissing, brains, 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 brains. To his horror, he saw their faces were dead, half rotted away, and he turned and ran. But not for his squad car, because that was blocked by a mob of ghouls. Instead, he dashed for the side door of the funeral home and pounded on it for all he was worth. Help! Help! Let me in! He yelled as the ghouls shuffled towards him in mass. Suddenly, the helicopter's searchlight beam lit up, lit up the ghouls and machine gun bullets began shredding them to pieces, strewing squirmy, twitchy body parts all over the wet pavement. That would have cost a lot of money to do, but it would have looked really cool in the movie. 
But even the decapitated or dismembered ghouls kept coming at Donaldson, limping and crawling, staggering in their relentless pursuit for living flesh. Some were already too close to him to be singled out for a burst of machine gun fire from the air, and he couldn't fight them off. They were reaching and clawing and snarling. In sheer desperation, he fired another slug smack into the face of his nearest attacker, attacker and felt his own eyes bulging in disbelief over the grim that somehow did not fade, even though great bloodless gaps were blown in the gray gums and yellow teeth. Ooh, that is terrifying. Let me read that one more time. Um, in sheer desperation, he fired another slug smack into the face of his nearest attacker, right into the face, and felt his own eyes bulging in disbelief over the grin that somehow did not fade. The grin did not fade, even though a great bloodless gaps were blown in the gray gums and green yellowish teeth. Then the side door of the funeral home opened and Donaldson entered the fleeting terror-stricken home. It, well, then the side door of the funeral home opened and Donaldson entered the fleeting terror-stricken hope that he might be saved. But Frank Nello, now full-fledged ghoul, came out choking Donaldson and biting his face as the other ghouls joined in, ripping and tearing and chewing. I forgot about that part. So Frank does get himself a taste of flesh. I, the, the only thing I remembered was what's coming next. I don't want to say because we're going to read it. But um, I forgot about that part. The cops in the helicopter had stopped strafing the area since their machine gun bullets seemed to have so little effect on the ghouls. But they continued to circle and observe with their bright searchlight. To the watch commander, Sergeant Harry McCarthy, who was by now half drunk, the pilot of the police helicopter radioed the following berserk message. Command, this is Air 3. I repeat, Air 3. We got terrible, unbelievable situation here. Terrible. Manko and Donaldson have just been killed and devoured. We saw it with our own eyes. I know it sounds crazy, but there are mobs of cannibals down there. And they can't, I repeat, cannot be killed by bullets. Our men have been murdered, overwhelmed by bloodthirsty, ravenous, fiendish assailants. Perhaps mutants of some sort or, or, or robots or creatures from another planet. McCarthy downed another big swig of whiskey and tried to calm the pilot down, even tried to talk to the co-pilot, but the same kind of blubbering bullshit kept coming out of both of their mouths and there were normally and they were normally hard nosed straight up and down no nonsense police officers mccarthy could feel it in his guts that something weird was going on out there but it couldn't be as fucking off as the wall but it couldn't be as fucking off the wall as the chopper men made it sound could it be a mass hysteria mccarthy hoped so even if it was something weird he wanted it to be something explainable Something that he could eventually that that could eventually be analyzed and understood, not something that would give him nightmares in his alcoholic old age, not something that would cause him to lose his badge just when he was almost ready to retire to placate the babbling half loony chopper men. He had promised to send a dozen riot wagons and a dozen squad cars. He had promised to put up a blockade around the whole warehouse district. He wondered if he should follow through or if he should refrain from pushing the panic button just because some other people were pushing it. The duty phone rang. He picked it up and heard more babbling. Hello, police. Thank God. This is an emergency. I'm Bert Wilson from 
sorry, we got to do the voice, guys. We got to do the voice. The duty phone rang. He picked it up. So they never explain where they're calling from, or maybe they do. I, I don't remember. He picked up and heard more babbling. Hello, police? Thank God. This is an emergency. I'm Burt Wilson from Unita Medical Supply, but I'm calling from a payphone, and I got to talk fast because ghouls are going to attack us if I stay on the line too long. They got to help us or we're goners. Okay, so he's calling from a payphone, but they never say, ghouls help you, the watch commander bellowed. What the fuck is going on out there? Is everybody going bonkers? I've lost six, six, I've lost six good men, and nobody can tell me from... Uh, nobody can tell me a damn thing that makes any sense. I heard everything from ghouls to cannibals to robots from another planet. Well, I don't want to hear that kind of shit. Either hit me with some logic or phone in somebody else, buddy, like a shrink or a funny farm, maybe. Bert said, I'm going to I'm going to call the army, but I want to let the local authorities first. It's it's I couldn't explain it if I tried. But see, the graveyard's full of people who aren't dead, who are stark, stirring men. But see, the graveyard's full of people who are dead, who aren't dead, who are stark, staring mad, and will kill you and eat you if they catch you. It's a disease. See, it's like rabies, only faster, lots faster, and it keeps making people turn dead, but not dead. Listen, I know it sounds crazy, but I, Sergeant McCarthy, slammed the receiver on the cradle, utterly disgusted and confused. He polished off the last two inches of whiskey and slammed the bottle into the bottom drawer of his desk. That is like so accurate, though, as to like what a dude would do. And that's like an alcohol cop, I feel like, would do in that situation. I get it. Um, in a tired, sad, slurred voice, he mumbled to himself, a crank call. I can dismiss this last one as a crank call. But what about the chopper pilot and the cold pilot? Nerve gas, brain damage. Maybe I'm the one who's brain damaged. Hearing things. Imagining that I'm losing all my men like some deranged battlefield sergeant. While the watch commander was mumbling to himself, Bert was sagging against the wall of a phone booth, letting the receiver drop to its side. Meat and Chuck, armed with a hatchet and a hammer, were guarding the booth, keeping an eye out for ghouls, although there didn't seem to be any in the immediate area. The van was parked by the booth, <clears throat> and Casey was staring anxiously out the side window. What's up, man? Meat said to Bert. Don't the fuzz believe you? The damn cops! Bert cursed. The situation is way above the fucking heads. The army. I got to call the army. He hung up long enough to break the connection. Then he put a quarter and dialed the operator. What's that number? He said to Meat. Give it to me. What's that? What's that number? He said to Meat. Give it to me. Meat recited it and Bert repeated it. 1-800-454-8000. The number of their doom. Bert stood waiting very tensely. With the phone in his ear, it rang once. Click. It was picked up. An expressionless male voice said, Hello? Bert said, Yes, I'm calling the number stencil on the side of some steel drums. Your name, please? The voice said with the same lack of expression. Bert Wilson. Stay on the line, Mr. Wilson. You're being transferred. Bert heard a click and a beep. Beep, beep, beep. Then a tinny filtered voice, different from the first one, said, This is ComQ Denver. Go ahead. Denver? Bert muttered perplex perplex perplexedly, but he hung on the line. Another filtered voice. Denver, this is Wichita. I have a C-L-Y priority on a 113. Who's up? The filtered voice from Denver said, that would be, that would be Colonel Glover, Grover, San Diego. I'll put you through. 
in the phone booth, listening to all of this meticulous filtered dialogue in great suspense, Bert gave me a baffled look. It was a quarter past midnight California time, 15 minutes into the 4th of July, when the special phone at Colonel Horace Grover's bedside didn't ring, but went beep, 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 beep in his Spanish Spanish style villa by the Pacific Ocean. The colonel sat up wide awake as if he had had a dream premonition that the long awaited phone call would come. He stared at the beeping phone, the glowing red light. Horace, what is it? His sleeping wife muttered. As usual, he ignored her. He grabbed the phone and stuck it to his ear. His heart was pounding with wild hope that this could mean an end of Operation Drummer Boy. Into the phone, he said, This is Drummer Boy Eagle at Station 3. Come in, please. He listened to the filtered voice with rising excitement. It was Wichita. Something was really up. Yes, Captain, he told the filtered voice. I see. Very well. Put that call through to me. Yes, put him on. The colonel's wife sat up in her wrinkled nightgown, her hair in curls. She was cooking two pork chops. No, I'm just kidding. She wasn't cooking pork chops. Um, The flesh on her arms and shoulders, flabby and pallid. The colonel grimaced at her with distaste, knowing that she would interpret his expression as one of dire seriousness over this particular phone call. In the orange glow of the bedside light, he punched buttons on the phone console, lighting up half the board, and at the same time, he grabbed for a pencil. Archimedes, Rutabaga, Alpha, Niner, Hot Dog. A babbling idiot named Bert Wilson came on the line. The colonel listened, then replied with F, but then replied with enforced calmness in his voice, even though he was sure now that Drummer Boy was about to break. Uh, yes, Mr. Wilson, where are you speaking from? Payphone, Louisville, in the warehouse district, Unita Medical Supply. The colonel took rapid notes as the idiot continued to babble. Mm hmm. Yes, I see. When did this take place? He listened and scribbled. Uh, and when was the first drum breached? He scribbled some more. And uh, why didn't you call this number immediately? He got a stupid, half incoherent excuse, but he wrote it down anyway. I see. It's understandable. What happened next? Uh huh. I see. I see. And did try? And did you try to stop them? He scribbled. Were you able to stop them? Wilson got louder and louder in his pandemonium, raving and cursing about chemicals, ghouls, brains, twitching pieces of bodies, and what have you. Then the colonel gave up trying to get it all in his notepad. I see, he said. He he said what he could when he could get in a word edgewise. I mean, he said, I see, he said when he could get in a word in edgewise. Nothing short of total reduction to ash. I see. Wilson wanted to keep babbling, but the colonel had all the information he needed now, so he cut the man off. Yes, I see. Of course. Thank you for your assistance, Mr. Wilson. I'm going to switch you back to Wichita now, and an officer there will talk to you. A a gleamy-eyed grin on his face, Colonel Grover punched the lucky call over to another line on his phone console and then swung his white, bony legs out of bed. Despite the heaviness of his paunch, his legs were sparrow thin, giving him his white, giving him in his white t-shirt and shorts the appearance of an egg mounted on two pipe, pipe stems. Clutching her throat, his wife touched his arm and he recoiled from her touch. Dear, is it? 
she whispered tensely. He nodded, putting on his black flannel robe, his blue flannel robe, and went out of the bedroom and into his study, hitting the light switch and shutting the door. He opened the liquor cabinet that contained more electronic equipment, inserted his key card, punched a single red button as he picked up the phone and put it to his ear. After three muted beeps, General Milton Dunstan, the Supreme Commanding Officer of Operation Drummer Boy, answered Colonel Grover's emergency call. Grover said, Sir, this is Drummer Boy Eagle. Sorry to disturb you at this hour, but we're at a Q2 status. Yes, sir, at last. It looks like we found that lost consignment of Easter eggs. Are you absolutely sure, Colonel? The general demanded. Yes, sir. Pretty sure. They've turned up in Louisville at an outfit called Unita Medical Supply. It rings a bell, sir. That damn defector, Aston, was familiar with Unita and its connection with some of our other operations. Not only that, sir, but our tap on the civilian law enforcement network has been feeding us some intelligence on some pretty weird communications within the Louisville Police Department. When you put it all together, it constitutes pretty hard confirmation, sir. Louisville, Kentucky. Well, this is good news, Colonel Grover, the general said. Well, it would be good news, sir, except the eggs have hatched. Oh, my God, General Dunson said. That's horrible, is it? I mean, yes, sir. I'm afraid so, sir, Colonel Grover said. It looks like our worst-case scenario. You mean, the general sputtered. Yes, sir, Grover said in a tight, awestruck voice. I'm afraid I have to ask you to confirm the order for extreme urban sanction. In, okay, so before we read the next part, so what is interesting and doesn't really get conveyed in the movie, but does get conveyed in the novelization. This is why you always have to read the novelization because you get information you you might not pick up on, or maybe it's implied, or maybe it's not outwardly said. Bert Wilson sort of seals his fate. Colonel Grover or Glover, depending on how you're pronouncing it, is basically debriefing Bert Wilson because they need to know what to do in the situation. I guess their contingency is to for total annihilation because of Bert Wilson telling them that there's no way to kill them. So in effect, that's one way to interpret it. At least that's how I was interpreting it when I was reading when he when he said, I have all the information, he said uh, he he cut the man off because he had all the information that he needed. <sighs> so in any case, he's now asked for extreme urban sanction, whatever that means. In Louisville, Bert Wilson was still on hold on the payphone after answering more questions put put to him by the Army Communications Commander in Wichita. Meet and Chuck standing by with their weapons and Casey leaning her head out of the side window of the Unita van, were listening with exhausted intensity. Hey, man, the suspense is killing me, Meat said. At least give us some kind of hint as to what's happening on the other end of that line. Bert cupped his hand over the mouthpiece. These army people seem pr sound pretty confident. They seem to say they've been waiting for this to happen. Apparently, they've got a contingency plan to deal with it. That's great, Casey said. What is this great fucking plan, Meat said suspiciously. I'm not sure, Bert Wilson admitted, but they want us to find shelter and hold up. Don't leave the city under any circumstances. I never, ever trust the army, said Chuck, but this time I guess none of us have much choice. We can't beat those things on our own, that's for sure. All of us might already be contaminated. Yeah, man, did you ask them about that, Meat said to Bert? Not in so many words, Bert replied nervously. 
but I'm sure they got my drift. They understand this thing. They said, hold tight, and they'd solve all our problems. I I don't like the way that Russo has written this in the book. I like it's so much better in the movie. What is it? What is it? The, the army says it's just we get these glimpses of the conversation. We don't get the full conversation. They've been waiting for this to happen. They have a contingency, and that's it. And and, and then it goes, do you hear that? Because the, the bomb is coming. Tina. Chapter 21. When the order for extreme urban sanction was confirmed down through the chain of command, the final telephone in the top secret Operation Drummer Boy link-up began beeping. This phone was picked up by 22-year-old U.S. Army gunnery sergeant. He was sitting in a little cab at one end of a long, flat railway car parked on a quiet spur out in the middle of nowhere on a forest of low scrub pines. On the bed of the flat car was a huge brown cannon and a 150-millimeter howitzer. Smoking a cigarette, the gunnery sergeant gazed out the window of his duty cab, admiring the sunrise. As he spoke into the telephone, the the reb orb, the reb, I think it's supposed to be the red orb of the sun. It says R-E-B. The red orb of the sun was just peeping into view over the tops of the low, scraggly pine trees. This is Drummer Boy 7, the sergeant said, on station for red alert. He wasn't nervous. He wasn't alarmed. He believed that this was just a drill. He believed that because he had been told so, that his cannon contained a live shell capable of being fired, but without a nuclear warhead. He had never fired his cannon before. Previous drills had never gone this that far. But even if he did fire it, it was his belief that that spent shell would parachute harmlessly down somewhere, probably way out into the ocean where it ran out of propulsion energy. He listened and dutifully wrote down the code numbers and he that he was given by his superior officer. Yes, sir. Oh, my God. They have them in here. Archimedes, hot dog, rhubarb, niner, zero. Gotcha, sir. Archimedes, hot dog, rhubarb, niner, zero. Gotcha, sir. So good. The voice of the superior officer continued with more instructions. Bearing Mark 220. Yes, sir, said the gunnery sergeant. Gotcha, sir. I have bearing 220. He began dialing the information into the howitzer's mini computer. The huge cannon swiveled around, rotating from one compass point to another on giant purring gimbals. The sergeant listened to his superior officer as he was given range and angle coordinates. The long muzzle slowly rose until it reached the desired arc, aiming above the trees out to the horizon. With a beep, the word locked flashed on the screen of the mini computer. A huge artillery shell bearing a red and yellow radiation symbol rolled into the breach and was chambered snugly with a loud metallic clang. Already here, sir, the gunnery sergeant said. Over the red alert phone, his superior officer, who he had never met, gave him the order to fire. Unconcerned because he was so sure this was just one more harmless drill, he enjoyed the flaming belch and the terrific kick of the giant cannon as it rocked the railroad car back on its springs. Chapter 22. Oh, God, this is great. This is so great. Tina and Ernie were still huddled in the attic, but now they had a candle going. She felt a little better not being in the pitch dark anymore, but she was still glad that Ernie kept his arm around her. 
She knew that she could be a lot braver and not so scared if Freddie wouldn't keep talking to her, yelling up through the barricaded hatch. In a way, she still loved him, even though it wasn't him anymore, but somebody, something that wanted to kill her. She trembled against Ernie as her boyfriend, in his altered state, spoke to her in a hissing, pleading voice. Tina, this is Freddy. Come to me, darling. Oh, dear God. Tina gasped. Easy, 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 easy. Ernie said, hugging her. Freddie's raspy voice permeated the love. Tina, it was wrong for you to lock me and Frank up. He blinded me when I fought him. Let you escape from him. But I forgive you, darling. And I know where you are. Even if I can't see you, I can smell your brains. Tina moaned and buried her face in Ernie's shoulder. Freddie said, I'm coming, Tina. I'm coming. He started pounding more fiercely than ever on the plywood that was nailed over the hatch. Some of the nail heads looked like they might start to pull through. But just as abruptly as he had begun, Freddie stopped pounding. Tina emitted a scream of terror and relief. Freddie then resumed, pleading with her. <laughs> Tina, listen to me. We're always meant so much to each other. So please, please open the hatch. It's wrong, awfully wrong that you should keep me locked down like this. Crash, the block hatch shook as something smashed against it from below. Tina and Ernie scuttled away as fast as they could. Underneath them, through the barricade, they heard Freddy's raspy, anguished moan. Then he said, Oh, see, now look what you made me do. Did you made me hurt myself again? In fact, you made me break my hand completely off this time. But I don't care, darling, because I love you, and you've got to let me eat your brains. <laughs> Wham again. Freddie banged his arms and his one remaining fist against the hatch. Tina screamed and clung to Ernie, shaking all over. He held her and patted her tear-dampened, long black hair. Freddie rasped, Raise! Raise my darling's brains! He tilted his ghoulish head, listening to Tina's anguished sobs. Then he heard something else from afar, a whistling sound. Tina and Ernie heard it, too. They listened keenly. The eerie whistling sound got rapidly louder, overwhelmingly loud, drowning out all other earthly concerns. It was the sound of doom, and it was the last thing that any of them ever heard. Tina! Dude, how great. Okay, that Russo crushing it right now. Ready? Um, 
it was the sound of doom and it was the last thing that any of them ever heard perfect just perfect and then we get this really weird epilogue chapter chapter 23 final chapter the defectors uh guy burgess donald mclean and raymond ashton were gleefully preparing to drink a toast of russian vodka at ashton's daca outside moscow they stood by a huge fireplace in the darkly furnished study when ashton filled three large glasses the morning uh, that morning of september 5th Raymond Ashton had a conversation with Gregory Zortov, the first director of the KGB division to which all three defectors were assigned. Uh, Zortov had briefed Ashton on the events subsequent to the obliteration of the city of Louisville, Kentucky, by a half a kiloton tactical nuclear artillery shell. The city no longer existed except for the remains of melted, twisted rubble. Its occupants had been vaporized. Thousands of people on the periphery of the massive explosion miles away from the mushroom fireball had been maimed, smashed, roasted, blinded, and poisoned by radiation. Morgues and hospitals outside the devastated area were overflowing with the dead, sick, and dying evacuees. It's like honestly terrifying. And, you know, I take that back. I actually really love this epilogue because we never get, not that you need one. You don't need one Return of the Living Dead, but it is kind of interesting to hear this now. So here is the 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 aftermath from this point of view. <clears throat> the American government had explained the incident by calling it an act of sabotage. According to an official news release, uh, uh, a hit, hit, I can't pronounce that, hetero, like, you know, here in to I can't say it. I can't say it. I know what the word is. I can't hit her toe. A hit her toe. Hit her toe. Unheard of leftist terrorist. Blah. A unheard heard of leftist terrorist group calling itself the Green Brigade. Oh my god, I suck. Calling itself the Green Brigade had wired the State Department to take credit for the disaster. They claimed to have detonated in Louisville's warehouse and refinery district a small nuclear device fashioned from stolen plutonium. The entire nation was in a state of panic and hysteria, not only because of the sudden awful destruction of one of its key cities, but because no one could be sure where the terrorists might strike next with their homemade nuclear bombs. That is terrifying. That is truly terrifying. When the three glasses were filled with vodka, the the beamingly elated defectors raised them high, uh, high and clinked clinked them together. Raymond Ashton proposed uh, a toast. Here's to Operation Drummer Boy. May it plague our enemies forever. So the bad guys win. They guzzled and tossed the empty glasses into the fireplace where they crashed and shattered. From a tray on his desk, Ashton took clean glasses and started pouring another round. Here's the best part, he said to the other two men. The American military establishment has prevailed upon the Environmental Protection Agency to help them the, with the cleanup they so avidly desire. The EPA has ordered the removal of tons and tons of soil and debris from the contaminated area. At this moment, that stuff is residing in 175 railroad cars parked on an unused railway line in South Dakota. Ha! Guy Burgess exclaimed, grinning with his wide, fish-like mouth. That's splendid. What are they planning on doing with it? What indeed? The frail, weak-chinned McLean chortled in insepidly. Even if they've diluted themselves into thinking they can decontaminate all that soil and debris, he pointed out, 
they still got an insurmountable problem because what about the water supply? What are they going to do about that? Ashton's pale blue eyes gleamed with humorous enjoyment of the predicament he helped cause for his former countrymen. They don't know how they're going to safely dispose of any of the contaminated stuff, he said with a soft chuckle. Rich, very rich, Burgess bellowed, breaking into helpless laughter. You mean, asked the timid McLean as ramifications dawned on him. Yes, exactly, Ashton said with a smug triumph in anticipation. It's bound to happen again. It's only a matter of time, and the terror will be loosed upon our enemies once again. They drank to it and tossed their empty glasses in the fireplace. The end. You know, I actually like the epilogue, whatever that final chapter, a lot more than when I first read it. I mean, the first part's really stupid, and the idea of the Russian subplot is stupid. However, uh, considering our current events right now on the brink of World War III with with Putin invading uh, Ukraine, um, you know, the this, this concept of Russia as uh, our number one arch nemesis from the Cold War has it's very contemporary once again um not not the russian people um but the the government the 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 figureheads like putin and whatnot um i really really enjoyed reading the book again it was way more terrifying the first time i read it i was terrified that time a little less so but still there are some real bone chilling moments i think in that book and it kind of makes me wish that like I almost want like like fan fiction like expansion or you know John Russo still alive like I would love for him to write a follow up I don't know maybe I wouldn't actually maybe I would really hate it I don't know maybe maybe Brian Usna I'd love for someone to continue the Return of Living Dead series in novel form that would be very interesting maybe maybe um there's still talk that we will someday get a, a, another Return of Living Dead movie I welcome them especially as long as they're in vain of the original film, even if they're not quite, you know, cause like look at return of living dead three, it's not quite in the vein of the original film, but it's a great movie all on its own. If you gave me a bunch, give, give us Brian Houston's original concept for return of living dead Four, hell Mary, that would be great. Um, so yeah. So next, so here's what I'm thinking about reading next. Um, no, I'm not going to tell you, I'm going to leave it as a surprise. Um, and if you're a Patreon, you will you will know before everybody else. That's one thing. So make sure to join the Patreon, yada, yada, yada. Um, thank you so much, guys, for taking this journey with me. And uh, I'll see you real soon on another video. In the meantime, peace and hair grease.